Well, I'm back. But uh, this time I come to lead what I think is going to be a very fun game. Now, I think as soon as I tell you what the game is, you won't think it's very fun, but I think it's very fun. So we are going to play a game that I like to call Public Confession. You don't seem particularly interested. That's fine. Here's what we're going to do. By show of hands, we're, we're going to answer this question. How many of you in the, the two or so years that we were forced to watch recorded services or streamed services or, or something to that effect, how many of you never or very rarely actually open your mouths to sing along with the music? My hand's up. I'll be very honest. Yep, yep, that sounds about right. I'm actually, I'm not trying to guilt you. In fact, I'm kind of doing the opposite. Because if you do feel guilty, which I'm guessing you don't, considering how quickly you threw your hand up, if you do feel guilty about the fact that you did not sing along with these recordings, these streams, today I actually want to absolve your conscience a little bit. Because today, we're gonna see that the Bible teaches that there is a fundamental difference between singing as a gathered congregation and singing alone in our cars or singing along with a recorded church service or something like that. This morning, we're continuing our series, Better Together, which is the series where we've been asking the question, why do we gather in person? You know, why do we gather in a common space at a common time, week after week after week? And why do we do the things that we do when we come together? Is there any point in all of these different things that we run through on a Sunday morning? And so today, as you might have guessed from the psalm that was read and from the question I began with, we're going to answer the question, why do we sing together? So the first thing to notice here, I did not use the word worship. So the big mistake that we've made in the North American church, we've kind of conflated worship and singing. We've almost made them like one and the same. Right? We think of our gatherings sometimes as a time of worship, and then we sit and we listen to, to some preaching and then we worship again. Or we'll talk about worship nights, by which we mean a night when we're going to get together and sing a bunch. Um, or we'll talk about our worship teams, these, these groups of people who lead us in, in singing on Sunday mornings. Which, by the way, if you've ever talked to me about these teams and you've heard me use the phrase music teams and thought, man, that's an awkward phrase. Yes, it is. But it communicates what I'm trying to communicate. And, and I, I draw this all from the idea that comes from probably a pretty well-known verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, where Paul says, and whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Or to paraphrase, do everything you do as an act of worship. So, absolutely, our singing should be an act of worship. But our praying when we come together should be an act of worship. The way that we listen to the scripture reading and listen to the sermon should be an act of worship. The way that we celebrate communion together or we see baptisms together should be an act of of worship, the way that we fellowship with one another, either here or in homes or in restaurants after the service, all should be an act of worship. I'll admit that's a bit of a soapbox thing for me, but, but here we go. With all that being said, singing is still a pretty big aspect of how we worship when we come together. So that's what we're going to focus on today. Singing has always been something really important for the people of God. Just to give you a bit of a brief history, we look back in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus. Israel enslaved in Egypt. The Lord brings them out by mighty power, splits the Red Sea. The Israelites go through on dry land. 
the Egyptians attempt to pursue and the Lord brings the Red Sea down on the Egyptians. For the first time in the existence of the nation of Israel, they are free. They're a free nation for the first time. And immediately, the first verse after the end of that story, Exodus chapter 15, verse 1, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. Immediately, they sing. A couple books later, to celebrate a large military victory in the book of Judges, chapter 5, we read, Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day. Military victory, singing. Singing together as the people of God. At a certain point in the history of Israel, they began to worship a whole lot of idols and worship God wrongly. But this King Hezekiah came in, came into power, and restored right worship to the people of Israel. And on the day that they restored right worship in the temple, we read in 2 Chronicles, the whole assembly worshipped, and the singers sang, and the trumpeters sounded. All of this continued until the burnt offering was finished. People of Israel rebelled, which if you read the Old Testament, that's a lot of what they do. They were exiled, they came back to Jerusalem, and the temple had been destroyed. And as they went to rebuild it, they laid the new foundation. And as they laid the new foundation, we read, they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. Those are just a few examples, not to mention the entire book of Psalms, which is a pretty long book of congregational songs to sing together as the people of God. And the importance of singing continued beyond the Old Testament, beyond the time of the New Testament, beyond the time of the early church. But this happened kind of both for good and for bad. For example, one of the earliest heresies that spread in the church was called Arianism. This guy named Arius started teaching that Jesus was a created being, that he, was, he did not exist from eternity past, but that he was God's first created being, and that he was not one with God. He was denying the Trinity, essentially. This view became so widespread within the church that, they, that it required the first major church council in 325 AD, where the church leaders formally condemned that as heresy. But the question, how did it spread so far? How did something that the Bible does not teach become so commonly held? And the answer was, in part, because Arius was a very, very good songwriter. His songs spread like wildfire. People heard them, they memorized them, they knew them, and they came to believe what his songs taught. Unfortunately, as the church began to lose sight of the authority of scripture and began to lean on tradition and the authority of the pope and clergy more than the word of God, congregational singing was actually banned in the 300s AD, and it remained so for 1,200 years. Praise God for the Reformation, because in the early 1500s, as Martin Luther rediscovered the gospel and began to return to the Bible as the sole authority for the church, he brought congregational singing back into the life of the gathered people of God. In fact, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and Ulrich Zwingli, the three major leaders of the Protestant Reformation, all realized that it was not only allowed to sing as a congregation, but it was actually commanded by Scripture that the people of God sing together. And so it's in that tradition of Protestant evangelical Christianity that we sing every week when we gather. These were our forefathers who brought it back into the church. But with that, we come to the question of this morning. Why? Why did they see that as a biblical command? Why do we sing every week? How should we sing every week? 
and maybe even how should we think about singing? How should we think of it as a congregation together? Now, interestingly, for how important singing has been to the people of God, the New Testament actually talks about it very little. There's really no long sections. There's not like a nice eight-verse chunk somewhere in one of the epistles where Paul gives us a whole breakdown of what it looks like to sing together. But the small statements that are made are loaded with ideas and information that must shape how we sing together on Sunday mornings. We'll spend our time in two different texts today. Both are short, but we're going to think deeply about the implications of the small statements that are made. And when possible, we'll link that back to why we do things the way we do here on Sundays. So the first of these passages, you can take your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be looking specifically at Ephesians 5 verses 18 and 19, but I'll read a little more around it just to, to give us some context, especially as we all need to see kind of how Paul is arguing here. So we in Ephesians chapter 5, reading verses 15 through 21. The Apostle Paul writes, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So I want to make four observations from these essentially two verses that we're going to look at. The first of those observations is that truly worshipful singing flows from the Spirit of God in us. So that's what Paul is doing here. He's contrasting Reckless living, which he summarizes by talking about drunkenness. He contrasts that with living a life that is submitted to the Spirit of God. What's interesting, too, is he uses a present tense verb. So it, it's, it feels kind of clunky in English, which is why translators do it the way they do. But it's almost read, but keep being filled with the Spirit. It, it's ongoing. It's, it's continual. But there's an important distinction we have to make here, because the New Testament uses two very similar phrases for two very different realities. You'll hear about indwelling in the New Testament, and you'll hear about the filling, both done by the Holy Spirit. So here's the distinction. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a one-time act that happens the moment that somebody puts their faith in Jesus Christ. They are filled with the Spirit of God, sealed for salvation by him, and enabled to love and serve the Lord in that way. One time. Not multiple times, it never goes away, one-time event. However, the New Testament also talks about being filled with the Spirit, which is, it's a different reality. It can happen any number of times throughout the life of a believer as the Lord wills. And as I did some work on trying to understand exactly what this phrase means in the New Testament, here's the best, quick, simple summary I can give. Being filled with the Spirit is having a fresh experience of grace where evidences of faith flow from us more obviously. So these might be things like the fruit of the Spirit. All of a sudden, we are, we're more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, more patient, more kind, more gentle, more self-controlled. Might result in a greater, it will result in a greater obedience to the Word of God, where His commandments feel sweet and not difficult, where we desire to obey. 
Lord willing, it will also result in a greater explosion of, from us of evangelism, desiring to share the gospel with the lost and see them experience the reality that we do. So, hopefully that makes you ask the question, well, how can I be filled? It's a good question to ask. Another really interesting thing about the verb that Paul uses here is that it's passive, meaning that the person who, who is doing it can't actually cause it to happen. This is a, a bit of a weird example, but it would be like me looking at you and saying, be slapped. You can't. You, you can't cause yourself to be slapped. Somebody has to slap you. And so in the same way, when Paul says, be filled, he's not saying, fill yourself with the Spirit. He's saying, be filled with the Spirit. Have somebody else fill you. And that somebody else is the Spirit of God. So while we can't do it ourselves, we are commanded and required to pursue it. We pursue this through prayer, for asking the Lord to pour his Spirit on us, to fill us with his Spirit. We do it through reading the Word of God, hearing his voice in his Word. We do it through obeying his commandments. We do it through community, fellowshipping with other believers. We pursue this reality that God commands us to pursue. All that to say, when we gather and sing, we are enabled to truly mean what we are singing by God's Spirit in us. Not by any strength of will of our own, not by any effort of our own, we cannot drum up in ourselves to believe these truths. This is enabled in us by God's Spirit. So that's observation number one. Observation number two is that singing together is a command. So this is why I read a few more of the verses around here. We have to look at the structure of this section to understand this. So, so looking back at verse 15, Paul begins, he says, Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. It's a command. He is issuing a command. And then he kind of gives a logical outcome of that. Look carefully then how you walk, making the best use of time. So if you're careful how you walk, you will make the best use of time. Then he continues. Therefore, do not be foolish, command, but understand what the will of the Lord is, command. Do not get drunk with wine, command, but be filled with the Spirit, command, and then once again we see an outworking of it. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. So the command is to be filled with the Spirit, and the logical outworking that Paul gives for that is that we will address one another. So we pursue being filled by, by doing this, by singing. We are commanded to sing. Now, yes, this is true of the church, right? We, we don't sing every Sunday because we feel like it. If ever you came to New Life Church on a Sunday morning and we did not have a time of congregational singing, we would be disobedient to the word of God. We are commanded to sing together. So for those 1,200 years when congreg congregational singing had been banned, the church was not functioning in accord with God's word. But while it's a command for the church, this is also a command for individuals. God commands each one of us to sing when we gather together. Now, I'm a man, so I want to talk to the men for a second here, because we are the ones who are most likely to disobey this commandment. We are called by God's word, men, to spiritual leadership in our homes and in the church, which means we must be the ones to first joyfully submit to what God requires of us. 
And his word is clear that one of those things is that we sing. And I get it. We don't all enjoy singing. I sure didn't. It was never something I enjoyed. This, this kind of came as a weird thing when I turned 18. It was, I don't get it. I'm, great, I'm grateful. I'm glad the Lord did that. I understand that some of us don't like singing, but it is a command that we are called to obey. And I realize this challenges a lot of our assumptions. We, we don't like being told that this is a command, but I hope that you can all see through the work in the text that this is not just Pastor Daniel's pet project. This is in the word of God. It is what Paul sees as a logical outcome of being filled with the Spirit, of being a believer, of pursuing obedience. And I think, if I might say, we understand this command better when we understand what the actual purpose of congregational singing is, which leads us to observation number three. On Sundays, we each sing to two audiences. Look what Paul says. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Addressing one another, making melody to the Lord with your heart. Now, the text does not draw this sharp of a distinction, but this might just be helpful for some of you in thinking about it. It's almost like the words that, that we sing with our mouths are the words that we sing to one another. And the truths that we believe in our hearts as we sing are the actual act of worship towards God. But again, that, it's not that sharp of a distinction in the text. It can just be a helpful way to maybe think of that. But what does it actually mean to sing to one another? Because I hope we all know that that doesn't mean worship. We're not worshiping one another, right? God is the only object of our worship when we gather. But what it does mean is that as we sing to one another, we have the incredible opportunity to spur one another on, to encourage one another, to call one another to a greater delight in the Lord and what he has done, to embolden others to sing. It's about building up each other. Let me give you some practical examples of how this might work. These first two stories, totally theoretical, not true of anybody in our church right now, but just for the sake of illustration. Let's say somebody comes in on a Sunday morning. They just lost their spouse. They're in mourning. They're in grief. And we sing, I mean, let's, let's connect it even more to today. We're singing, blessed be your name. We come to the chorus, or the, the bridge. You give and take away. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. Those are hard words to sing for that individual. But now imagine that they look across the congregation and they see someone else who had gone through the same thing a month ago, three months ago, six months ago, five years ago, able to sing those words with great faith. And by seeing somebody else who has gone through the same experience, able to come back and proclaim that truth boldly, that person is strengthened to sing it as well. And more than that, for the people sitting around, the person who maybe know their situation, all of a sudden they see somebody who just lost a spouse, singing, you give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. And those around that person are emboldened to sing as well. Their faith is stirred, their hearts are stirred, and they trust God more. Another example. Not that long ago, we introduced a song here called, I Will Wait For You. Verse 1, the line goes, Out of the depths I cry to you, in darkest places I will call. Incline your ear to me anew and hear my cry for mercy, Lord. I was the one to introduce that song. I was not in the depths that day. 
Quite honestly, it was a pretty good day. I was happy to be introducing that song. Things were going well. I did not need those words that day, but some of you did. And so as we sang together, some of us, because we were singing together, we didn't actually need to hear that truth, and others because they needed it that day. We step into the morning with our brothers and sisters who need us with them in the morning. And as we sing that chorus, I will wait for you, I will wait for you, on your word I will rely, we stand together, waiting with those of our brothers and sisters who are going through suffering. Finally, and as a more personal example, I'm up here on the stage twice a month leading singing. Sometimes I come and my heart is cold. The lyrics aren't clicking. I'm not feeling it. There's, there's really no worship happening, if we're being honest, at least not in me. And it is through hearing you, the congregation, sing that my heart is stirred. It's through hearing the voices come back that that fire is lit, that I start to believe these words because I'm hearing other people sing them. Really, singing together is a beautiful, practical way to live out the Romans 12 command to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And then Rusty alluded to this just a few weeks ago. I think it might have been in second service. You might not have heard him say this, but this command is actually the reason why we don't dim the lights in here we don't have smoke machines. We don't have big fancy lights. We, quite honestly, our lyrics are really boring. It's white text on a black background. But that's because when you gather here, we want you to be aware of each other. We don't want something to stand between you seeing your brothers and sisters singing as well. We want you to see each other. We want you to love each other, to sing to each other. And that's one of the practical ways in which we pursue that. So what about the second audience? First audience is each other. Second, and I hope this is pretty obvious, is God. We make melody to the Lord with our hearts, which I think is just Paul's way of saying, mean it. Mean what you're singing. And again, per personal confession, personal example. I know a lot of these songs really, really well. I, I lead a lot of them. I listen to a lot of them during the weeks. The words are second nature, and it can often happen that I do not think about the words that I'm singing. That's bad. That's really bad, and Paul is clear that we must not do that. But we must be truly aware of what we are pro proclaiming to and about God and ourselves. Okay, fourth observation from this text. We are to sing various types of songs. It's a pretty simple one, but Paul says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So that first word, psalms, Sounds pretty obvious. He is talking about the 150 psalms in the Bible. It was used for congregational singing, which is the reason why, you might have noticed over the last little bit, we've started singing more songs as a church that are written directly out of the words of the psalms. First song we sang this morning is Psalm 8. We want to follow this command. Hymns, spiritual songs, little less obvious what Paul was talking about. He did not mean by hymns what we mean by hymns. There's a lot of debate around what spiritual songs means, but I think his whole point is to say, Style is not important, but content is. Truth and mutual, mutual edification, mutual encouragement, is far more important than our musical preferences. So Ephesians 5 tells us how we should sing by the power of the Spirit, why we should sing, it's a command, who we should sing to, to God and each other, what style we should sing, 
doesn't matter, any style. We're going to make three more observations from a very similar passage. You can start turning over to Colossians chapter 3. And here, we're going to see what Paul says, what words we should sing, what our goal should be in singing, and what our attitude should be as we sing. So Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. It's going to sound very similar. He's, he's using a lot of similar language, but there's some nuance here that's important. Paul writes, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So three more observations, first of which is that we are to sing of the gospel and of doctrine. So we have to look at Paul's logic here to get to where I got. So he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It's like he anticipates the question, well, Paul, how do we do that? So he says, well, teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. And then the question returns, well, Paul, how are we as a church supposed to all teach one another? To which he goes, well, sing. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So to track his logic back a little bit, it means that our songs are supposed to help in causing the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. Greek has a plural form of you, which is really helpful. When I say you, I can be talking about an individual or I can be talking about all of you. Paul's using the plural form here. And I, I can't believe I'm going to do this, but this is the only way I can get across his intention here. It's like he's saying, let the word of Christ dwell in y'all richly. That's his point. It, it's, it's plural you. It's all of you. He's saying, again, work together. Build one another up that the word of Christ would dwell in all of you richly. So now commentators disagree on whether word of Christ is a specific allusion to the gospel or if it's just another way of saying word of God, the Bible, doctrine, theology, all that. I don't know why that's a debate. It's probably just both. It's kind of a weird thing to get stuck up on um, because ultimately all doctrine points us back to the gospel and the gospel points us to dig deeper into doctrine to understand all of it more fully. So then the question arises, well, how do we sing the gospel? I think the answer is we sing as much as we can about all of its parts, all of its intricacies, all of the beauty that is in it. So, so we sing about God as creator, as redeemer, as holy, as just, as loving, as merciful. We sing about mankind and we admit through song our failure, our sinfulness. We admit our need for a savior as we sing. We sing about Christ. We sing of his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. We sing about the fact that he is coming again. We sing about his finished work on the cross for us. And we sing about the need to respond in faith. We never leave a question about how it is that you turn to God. You do it by faith in Jesus Christ. And how do we sing doctrine? Because I realize that that word, doctrine or theology, that just sounds really stuffy to some of you. I say that, and your eyes glaze over like you are gone. So, so let me just give, hopefully, a definition that helps make this a little easier to think about. Doctrine or theology is simply a distillation of what the Bible teaches. We just want to put it into simple terms, simple forms. Well, not always simple, but we, we want to take all the truth the Bible teaches and put it together. So to sing doctrine 
we sing the whole counsel of God. If the Bible talks about it, we want to sing about it. And what Paul says is that through this, the word of Christ dwells in us richly or abundantly. So our desire should be that as we sing, we mine the depths of God's grace, his love, his justice, his wrath. We mine the depths of what Christ has done for us. We understand that when he died on the cross, he bore the weight of our sin and he gave us his righteousness. When we sing, we want to mine the depths of the Spirit's work in us, that he sanctifies us, that he enables us to love God and to serve effectively, that he seals us for salvation. We want the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. Really, this contrasts the idea that when we sing, that's, that's the time for us to engage our hearts and emotions. And then during the sermon, this is the time when your heads have to turn on and you have to think. I, I think if you ask Paul what he thought, he would say, well, singing is both heart and mind, and preaching is both heart and mind. Both of them are both. I'm going to steal a quote from a Bible teacher who I really appreciate. Jen Wilkin writes, The heart cannot love what the mind does not know. The heart cannot love what the mind does not know. And so as we know God better by singing songs that are serious about the gospel, that are serious about doctrine, it moves our hearts as we understand the words more fully. That's what stirs up our emotions. And we love God for who he truly is, not just for who we think he is or for who we want him to be. We love him for who he is and for what he has done. Observation number six. Our singing should teach and admonish one another. This is both simple and profound. What Paul is saying, essentially, is that teaching on Sunday mornings is not just the job of the pastor, and that the sermon is not the only time on Sunday morning when teaching happens. This is linked inseparably to our last observation, because as we sing what is true, we are all being taught together. We're teaching each other. We're singing truths from the word of God so that we can all hear, understand, and believe. What about admonishing? I had to look that word up in the dictionary. Didn't know what it meant. Got four definitions, all of which are slightly different, but all of which are actually really helpful in understanding that this is a multifaceted word. And as I read each of these definitions, words from songs that we sing together on Sunday mornings came to mind. So I'm going to read the definition I'm going to point you to some lyrics we sing that achieve this purpose. So admonish. Definition number one, to counsel another against something to be avoided or warn that something is dangerous. I think of the song, Christ Be Magnified. As we come to the bridge and we sing, I won't bow to idols. We commit ourselves to that, but we are in essence warning one another, don't do it. Don't bow to other gods. Stay true to the one true God. Definition number two, to urge or exhort someone to do something. And I thought of the words, turn your eyes upon Jesus. As we sing together and we are saying, look to Christ, look to Christ. Don't look to the world for satisfaction, look to Jesus, turn your eyes. Definition number three, to remind someone of something forgotten or disregarded as an obligation or responsibility. I believe that we are a people who are quick to fall into believing that we can earn our salvation. So I thought of the words, in Christ alone, my hope is found. And we remind each other, it's only in Christ. It's not in us. It's not in our good works. Our hope is found in Jesus. 
And the final definition, to reprove gently but earnestly. And I thought of the words, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Calling one another to rightly place our trust in him. As we sing together, we call one another away from sin and towards holiness, away from errors in our theology and towards the truth. Which, as a little side comment, means we must be aware and cautious about what we listen to and sing. Think back to that story from church history. Many people believed Arius's false teaching because he wrote really good songs. Church, we must be bringing everything we believe back to the word of God, every song we sing, every line, to know if it is true, to know if we are being built up by what is true, not just by what feels good or sounds good. Final observation, observation number seven, we should sing ever aware of what Christ has done for us. So there's one very obvious connection here. Paul says, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Great, happy Thanksgiving, see you all. Not quite. Thankfulness, obvious connection. Of course, we need to be grateful, thankful for what God has done. But as you read a little further, you'll come across this phrase, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. In the name of the Lord Jesus. And as I was looking at these verses, I realized that I had no idea what that meant. Phrase shows up a whole lot in the New Testament. I always just kind of gloss over it. It just seems like kind of a throwaway phrase. I had never thought about what it actually meant to do something in the name of the Lord Jesus. So I started going to work. I looked at all the passages in the New Testament in which it's used to see how different authors use it, try to figure out exactly what it means. And as I worked, I realized that A, it has a lot of implications. And B, every one of those implications helps ground one of the seven observations that we have made this morning. I'm going to lean on the Puritan commentator Matthew Henry here. He's been dead for 400 years. He still knows far more than I do about the Bible. Um, he's often very wordy, which I often don't find helpful. He'll take like, like one verse and write seven paragraphs. It, it's a lot of work just to get through most of it. But sometimes his wordiness is helpful, and this is one of those situations. So I'm going to put that quote up on the screen so Matthew Henry, in commenting on this passage from Colossians chapter 3, he, uh, he inserts his definition of doing something in the name of the Lord Jesus into these verses. So I'm going to read this now. And whatsoever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So that's the passage from Colossians 3 here. And then he adds, according to his command and in compliance with his authority, by strength derived from him, with an eye to his glory, and depending upon his merit for the acceptance of what is good and the pardon of what is amiss. And then he finishes the quote from Colossians, giving thanks to God the Father by him. So we'll just leave that up. And I'm just going to show you quickly how each of these little elements that he drew out links back to one of the things that we've talked about this morning. So we do things in the name of the Lord Jesus by doing them according to his command. We are a people who are commanded to sing and who are commanded to sing to one another. We do it in compliance with his authority, meaning that we don't get to tell people to do things that Jesus hasn't told them to do, which means we don't have the authority to decide what type of music a church should be doing. It's about content, not about style. We do it by strength derived from him. We are enabled to worship through song by the spirit of God in us, not by any strength, any effort, any ability, 
of our own. We do it with an eye to his glory. We sing truth from our hearts and together declare the beauty of the gospel and of true doctrine. And we depend upon his merit for the acceptance of what is good and the pardon of what is amiss. God only receives us. He only receives our worship if we do it through Christ. Otherwise, it's not true worship. So he receives our singing because of Christ's merit. And, praise God, he forgives our mistakes also because of Christ's merit. So we don't have to be perfect. But he receives us because of Christ and he forgives us because of Christ, which should instill in us thankfulness to God in our hearts. Because all that we are enabled to do is through Christ. So in all we do, singing or anything else, we do it grateful for the gospel and what has been given us in it. I started this morning with a brief history of singing in the church or in the people of God. And I want to end by giving you all a glimpse of the future. You can turn to Revelation chapter 15. Look at verses 2 and 4 very, very briefly. Um, Just as you turn there, this is the book of Revelation. There's a lot of weird apocalyptic language. There's a lot of imagery, a lot of symbolism. So here's the cheat sheet. The people that John is talking about are the people of God, which means as we read this, if you are a Christian today, he is seeing you in this crowd. And we're looking forward to the future when Christ is standing in victory, when the victory is total, at the end of the world, when when he is coming again. And we read in Revelation 15, verses 2 through 4, John says, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. So that's us, church. We're a part of this group. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Standing in Jesus' completed victory at the end of time. And what's the response? It's not to shout. It's not to cheer. It's not to dance. It's to sing. The people of God started with a song, Exodus 15, as they were free. And we look forward to the time when we totally free from our sinful nature, totally free from the persecution that the world brings on believers, totally free in worship of our victorious king, and we sing. Singing has been vital to the people of God since the beginning, and it will be to the end and beyond the end as we worship and sing into eternity. Beyond these principles that we have seen today, every time that we gather together is a chance for us to preview this day. It helps us look forward to the day when every child of God from every tribe, tongue, and nation and every period of human history stands in Christ's victory to sing of God's greatness and his perfect victory over Satan, sin, and death. So as we long for that day, church, let us preview it well. Let's be a church that each and every week gathers to sing for the glory of our God 
and for the building up of one another, for the encouraging of one another, so that we would, we would strive to, to push one another towards further holiness, obedience, and worship. Let's pray. And Father, even as we think about the reality of singing on Thanksgiving, we're grateful that, that you have created a world and you have created bodies that are capable of that that you've given us instruments that can make music, that we can understand melody and harmony, that we hear the beauty in song, and that you've given us minds that allow us to write lyrics that glorify and honor you. So, Father, we just pray that we as a church would be a people who understand why it is that we sing, that we would be a people who do sing together for your glory and for the good of each other. Father, enable us to do this well. We are not able by our own strength. Thank you for your spirit who gives us that ability. We pray now that as we sing, that you would be worshipped, that we would be built up, and that, Father, we would be a people who are thankful for what Christ has done. Amen.